I'm not a, an academic and a great thinker. I, I think the heart sees often before the head sees and understands. Certainly in my experience, that's true. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. To see Tim Costello in Parliament House is to witness a man struggling his way through a storm. Invariably, Tim is accompanied by a minder who is trying to take him from one meeting where he's running late uh, to the next meeting. And that's because everybody in Parliament House has something to say to Tim. Whether it's people on the progressive side of politics who see him as a role model, a voice for the less powerful, or people on the conservative side who knew his brother, Peter Costello, during his 11 years as Australia's Treasurer. Tim Costello was the minister of Collins Street Baptist Church for 11 years, the CEO of World Vision for 14 years. He's now taken up the newly created role of World Vision's chief advocate. His new book is Faith, Embracing Life's Uncertainties and Mysteries. And he joined us on the Good Life podcast today. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. For a politician, you're a great broadcaster. <laughs> it's my new vocation. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Tim, when, when did religion first find you? So I uh, was in a family that was very committed to their faith. My, my father had this extraordinary religious conversion at 19. He, he was from an atheist family, not non-church-going, working-class, labour-voting family out in Ascot Vale, the western suburbs of Melbourne, and... Um, he wanted to play with uh, uh, the best cricket team in Ascot Vale, which was the Presbyterians. You had to go to church, and he came home one night as a believer. <laughs> so religion's really a testimony to the power of sport uh, in our family. Uh, through my father's uh, um, religious conversion, he became a Methodist lay preacher. And uh, when he and my mother settled in Blackburn without a car, which they didn't have until I was 10, the uh, closest church was the Baptist church. So we were very devout. I'd go to church, Sunday school, a thing called Christian Endeavour in the afternoon, and then um, a, a youth service at night. Um, you're lucky you're devout now if you go twice a month to church. We were going four times a Sunday. Uh, so from a very early age, it was part of my life. And you trained initially as a lawyer rather than a minister, didn't you? I uh, did. Yep. At what point did you decide that you wanted to become a minister? So I was doing family and criminal law, and I loved the law, and I wanted to go deeper. Every uh, criminal I represented repented on the uh, steps of the court, uh, only to usually go back to their ways when I kept them out of prison. Family law was um, pretty depressing. People who had loved each other, scratching each other's eyes out over uh, 
the couch or custody of the kids. So I, I never chose not to be a lawyer. I went, went off to study theology uh, to actually be a better lawyer but have deeper theological, philosophical foundations to be a, a good lawyer. And so when I came back, I set up a legal practice uh, in St Kilda and a little church, Baptist church with 10 people, said, uh, you can set it up in our building if you'll preach for us on Sunday. So I, uh, I was a lawyer uh, preacher. I'm a slow mover from law to grace. Uh, and over time, the preaching, the pastoral side became bigger. The legal practice flourished, but uh, I started to turn the volume down on that. What, did, what do you enjoy about uh, being about preaching? I think when you're talking about a morally serious topic uh, to people who gather each week, so you're not just giving your best talk and heading out of town, but you're actually doing formation, grappling with uh, your understanding and theirs, there is a sense of great integrity and traction to say the great mysteries of life which we never solve, we're actually serious about. We're um, devoting this time every Sunday and doing some good, passing around a a plate that actually helps people in need in our community. So a whole lot of aspects of it uh, really I found fundamental and still do. Uh, And I I actually do miss being a a preacher pastor week by week with with the same congregation. Did you think of it largely as uh, a way of repackaging well-known ethical truths or about trying to to offer new insights? Yeah, so out of uh, my theological study, there was this uh, realisation that Christian faith wasn't about an escape ticket out of this world. Um, You know, I've booked my ticket to the great U2 concert in the sky and uh, my place is reserved. (laughs) Um, It was actually about thy kingdom come on earth, thy will be done on earth, and that um, in uh, the the life and teaching of Jesus, and I would say anything we know about God, God's pretty fuzzy and... uh, You know, I I like Woody Allen, who was asked, do you believe in God? He said, yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but he seems to be a bit of an underperformer. He doesn't stop tsunamis and kids are ill dying. Um, I would say that uh, God doesn't seem to intervene a lot uh, in answering prayers in the supernatural, not in my experience, but um, in the person of Jesus who uh, loved right over the top, who said, turn the other cheek, even love your enemy, you know, I could go with Jesus if it was common sense, like avoid your enemy or maybe tolerate your enemy, but love your enemy. Um, and that that sense that even your enemy carries the image of God, has inviolable human rights and love rather than destruction or violence is not a formula for success in transforming your enemy, but is actually a better way to go about it, meant that it was ethical principles, but ethical principles really founded in a, in a Christian faith that there is a different way of reconciling, of forgiving, of loving, um, and that that has been unleashed. That is actually a possibility, historical human possibility. So certainly ethical, but certainly also founded in a faith. Do you, how do you go in terms of loving your enemy? It's an extraordinary notion. I remember that uh, the church shooting in the United States last year and the willingness of those uh, family members of the victims to stand up at the funeral service and say that they 
forgave the person who had murdered their loved ones. Uh, do you had and and. Obama speaks about this in that 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 speech in which mm. he, uh, he he ended up singing "Amazing Grace." Um, how do you go in your own life about mm. uh, at uh, loving those with whom you disagree the most? Now, this is actually why Christian faith uh, isn't for a, a recipe for happiness and prosperity and upward mobility. It actually demands impossible things. So I, I I struggle loving my enemies. I. I have to meditate on that and recognise that uh, I'm not just an individual who can exclude and cut out others, that they, I am interdependent with them. Even the things that annoy me most in them often are actually a projection of the things I don't like about myself and I have to uh, face that. Um, I, I think what you cited there is, is an extraordinary example. So that young man, white racist, his name Dylan Roof, and he literally said... I have to do this, you're raping our white women and I've got to kill you. And they said, no, you don't have to do this. And then for families to say, we are going to rise above hatred because we know hatred only is a cancer that destroys us is extraordinary. I don't know if I could ever do it. Uh, It's the ideal. But I think they're right. Uh, And I think in terms of, um, you know, political history, we we know they're right Uh, in Rwanda where I was quite shocked to see many of the people World Vision works with say, we forgave the killers of our family before they'd even confessed and repented. And I said, well, that's the wrong order. They should confess first and then they might deserve forgiveness. Why do you do it that way? And they said, because offering them forgiveness opened up this space where they could confess, where they actually were so shocked that they took responsibility and it led to not just reconciliation but showing where our loved ones were buried. Where mm. that, that putting forgiveness first that opens up a space, uh, I think, is what Nelson Mandela did. You know, uh, who, who would have thought there wasn't going to be a bloody revolution? But he came out and he said, I forgive. And he lifted a nation above revenge. Um, and Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King. So um, I think... Loving enemies is right. Um, I love the story of Abraham Lincoln when he had his political uh, opponents in a corner. His advisers said, go for the, uh, the strike now. You can destroy them. And uh, he was being nice to them and treating them kindly. And his advisers said, you've got to destroy them. They're backs to the wall. And he said, but if I make my enemy my friend, do I not destroy my enemy? And uh, Lincoln, great leaders, I think, have understood this doesn't always work out, but it's at least a historical possibility. How do you reconcile that with the notion of evil in the world? You then presumably think of evil as being something that can be disconnected from the evildoer? So I have seen so much malevolence in my work with World Vision um, that I'm not at all the naive optimist I once was. My journey is a journey from naive optimism, um, a very simple faith, if you like, through despair to what I'd now call a realistic hope. And a realistic hope says that uh, evil does exist in the world and it does need to be quarantined and contained and you can't simply apply the personalist ethic of love your enemy, turn the other cheek in every political historical situation, that uh, evil uh, does need restraint. But the realistic hope in me still says um, 
the the possibility that people can change, the situations can change through radical grace. You know, there's Obama singing Amazing Grace through the forgiveness being offered is something that I keep alive and try to practice in my life. And in terms of how you decide how to deploy your considerable advocacy skills and your your ability to uh, to bring compassion to situations where others wouldn't, how do you how do you prioritise things? How how do you uh, decide what to do and who to who to engage with? And and how do you manage to stay calm through that process? Which I think is is the thing that I always admire when I see you in high pressure situations like advocating in Parliament? A lot of the uh, issues choose me. Um, I didn't get involved in pokies. Uh, we've got 20% of the world's pokies here in Australia because uh, I had a religious wowzer, visceral psychic vomit. <laughs> I, I had a client in my legal practice in the Baptist Church in St Kilda who had a marriage, a business, three lovely kids, didn't smoke or drink, when pokies were introduced in 1992, uh, she came to me because she'd lost her business, her house, her marriage, and then had stolen $60,000 from a job she'd got. And I represented her. She got four years jail, unheard of now, for 60000 We know it's an addiction. And um, her, her name was Zlata. Her, her story made me say, this woman wasn't a criminal, had never done anything wrong, didn't even have addictions. We suddenly introduced what I now know are profoundly addictive machines and it's made her into a criminal. So my 20 years of advocacy on gambling, on pokies and now sports betting actually chose me. I I visited her in prison, I went to her daughter's weddings afterwards, I was part of her rebuilding her life. And I knew I owed it to her to actually say, it's not just her, it's tens of thousands of others and we can reform this. Um, When it comes to uh, a lot of other issues, housing in St Kilda, I ended up the mayor of St Kilda. I'm the last mayor ever of St Kilda. I did such a good job they abolished the council. (laughs) Uh, um, It was people who were poor in St Kilda and lived for generations being forced out with new money. So I stood on a platform and housing became a... So most of my, my priorities actually come through personal encounters that then becomes a campaign and an advocacy. And I I stay calm if I do. I stay calm because I actually remember that uh, the arc uh, of history is long. It's very long. I want to believe it moves toward justice, but it's very long and it may not happen in my time. And how do you use the... uh uh, your skills that you've uh, attained as a church minister in an increasingly secular world. To what extent do you find yourself drawing on explicitly on theology or on religious metaphors, or is it more that you just take your sort of beautiful speaker speaking speaking voice and your human stories and deploy them instead? No, I'm very uh, very schooled in the. Uh the 8th century Hebrew prophets and uh, clearly the New Testament. So my mental world is is that world. It's funny, when I visit Israel, I, I feel like I've gone back home. Uh, I actually grew up with that, um, that world and those stories and they are the default setting for a whole lot of what I, 
uh, I do. Now, I read literature and Shakespeare and I use lots of other metaphors, but the, the primary one still is uh, that view. And I, I, I think that's important for me because I have a belief, people may not share it, that great cultures and societies can only continue to be nourished and flourish if they do have a spiritual uh, transcendent story, that something that is bigger and deeper that can't be proved, you have to occupy this ground, there's no sort of empirical evidence, uh, and that when we don't tend the soil of that spiritual sto story, we actually become highly individualistic, we turn human rights into just an entitlement and a victim mentality. Uh, when we don't tend that deeper story, for me, human rights are actually profoundly based in that spiritual story, that everyone carries the image of God, that uh, uh, we, we simply can't uh, understand grounding human rights without some appeal, whatever, however faint, to some spiritual source, some transcendent deeper meaning. Uh, even the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, appeals to a spiritual brotherhood. Um, now, whatever the transcendent story is, I'm not as fussy about, but uh, when we lose that transcendent story, the individualism, I think, leads to narcissism. I, I think we are in a, a time of deep narcissism. I, I, I believe this even before President Trump got elected. Uh, and I think that narcissism um, is profoundly corrosive of culture and flourishing societies. And the spiritual transcendent mental world of the Bible, for me, is a pretty important alternative narrative. To what extent do you draw on modern philosophy as you, as you think about ethics? Um, Sam Harris, one of the uh, mm. critics of organised religion, says that he thinks the project of, uh, of, of imagining what it is to live a good life is enormously important, but he thinks it's also extraordinarily constraining to do, th do so through the prism of a uh, first century, eighth century uh, view of the view of the world. Yeah. Uh, do you do you draw a lot on modern philosophers? Have they yeah, shaped no, I, absolutely. The world? No, I I, I uh, read a, a lot of uh, modern philosophers. Um, I'm particularly influenced by people like Amartya Sen, his book uh, The Idea of Justice. Um, uh, not just modern, I think Plato probably got it right when he said uh, a just man is, the ha is a happy man, an unjust man is an unhappy man. I actually resonates with me. Look, I, I would say I'm not a, an academic and a great thinker. I, I think the heart sees often before the head sees and understands. Certainly in my experience that's true. And um, when Einstein says, um, if you want to be happy... Uh, the happy person is someone who seeks out and then serves others' needs. That, to me, is Jesus. But it's also other philosophers. Uh, I don't mind the, the claim to authorship. That uh, uh, when I see, feel the resonance, uh, which might have started with my faith, but I see in um, particularly virtue philosophers more than consequentialist utilitarian philosophers, uh, I have a, a sort of correspondence and resonance between you know, my sources of faith and modern philosophy and just that deeper story that uh, it's not all about me. I'm profoundly interconnected. I'll be happy, actually, when I, when I serve uh, others. 
Where do you see uh, Australians now as going for their nourishment to answer the question of what it is to live a good life? Mm. I mean, in a world in which less than one in five Australians are going to uh, church, temple, mosque, any other form of religious service on a Sunday, uh, what, where do you see people going for, for answers to those big ethical questions? Yeah. Uh, do the Sunday assembly, uh, kind of non, non, non-religious uh, Sunday gatherings, have, a, have an important role to play here? Absolutely. And funnily enough, it's me and Father Bob Maguire that speak at these atheist Sunday <laughs> assembly gatherings. Um, and I, I commend them. I think they're terrific that they actually come together and say, let's do something intentional. Um, it's funny when you're there because they say, we're rationalist, empirical, evidence-based, so uh, we're going to sing, but we're going to sing for rational reasons because endorphins are released and we feel better. <laughs> and uh, there's everything's got to be rationally grounded. It's a, it's a little twee for me, but I absolutely applaud them for what they're doing. I, I think um, Australians look to two sources. One is family. I think the actual debate around... Um, family, which is a contested notion, and I personally believe we have to enlarge the notion of family but not abandon it, is because uh, it it is within family. You get your primary identity and meaning. Uh, We know kids that are either stolen generation or fostered who just live a life of chronic pain because there wasn't that family setting. Um, I think... uh, that's why you know family and, and narratives that nourish it and enlarge view of family are so important. Uh, and you know, I, I was talking to an American friend yesterday who said uh, the pain at, in Thanksgiving in America just passed, which is like Christmas for Americans. Is many families cancelled Thanksgiving dinner because politics had divided them so badly in this presidential election they couldn't sit down with their own family members. Now, I know a little bit about political differences under the same roof, um, but I think family is, is the first one. The second one is community. Uh, I think when you see, uh, whether it's sporting or recreational or uh, artistic communities, uh, it's Australians saying, we know our identity comes from being in solidarity with a purpose beyond just our particular needs, serving something bigger um, that actually gives that sense of identity. Um, the sad thing is that I think community is often fragmenting. The pace of our lives, uh, technology, the fact that now when Australians are asked where do you go for community, the highest percentage, 39% say, to the shopping complex. That seems sad to me. <laughs> um, but I think family and community are, are the sources. How do you manage to uh, to use these technologies and so they're keeping you engaged and uh, and ethical rather than distracting you? How do, how do you how do you manage the demands of email and Facebook and uh, and Twitter and the like? Yeah, very simply, I I've never been on Facebook and I never will. I I actually don't look at social media. Um, uh, to be honest, I started with a Facebook page that you can never get rid of and I uh, applied to each of my three adult children to be their friend on Facebook and all three rejected me. Uh, they, they said it's parental stalking. I said, that's it. I'm not going on Facebook now. Um, 
I, I'm very worried uh, about, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when you trusted absolutely nothing on the internet. You trusted a journalist who thought and edited. I'm really worried, you know, the debate, the debate with Facebook is meant to be open and um, connected is their motto, that uh, the algorithms that produce the filter bubbles that drive stories of your prejudice and ideology towards you is making us siloed and less connected. So part of me just says I'm not going there. Um, well, yes, I use uh, uh, phones and emails and I, I keep trying to remember and remind myself that if it's a choice of emailing someone in the building or going around and talking to them, I should at least have a rule to go and talk to them as often as I can because facial expression, nuance, touch is actually so important in creating community care and empathy. What will you miss most about stepping down as head of World Vision? Is it that that personal contact with the 600 employees? Yeah, look, I'm still um, working as chief advocate, so I'll have actually more time for that. Uh, the, mm. the weight of being a CEO and managing a board um, was extraordinary. You know, 13, 14 years of actually managing when I was never any good at it, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that secret now. Uh, uh, lifted off me is actually quite a, a, a great stage of my life. And calling in a new CEO, her name's Claire Rogers, to be the you know, who, who is good at some of those things, I think is fantastic for me. So um, I'll still be doing the field stuff. I'm off to Uganda next month. I'll still be um, trying to be a, the chief morale booster in so far as I do that. So those bits of the job feel like fun, not slog. What do you what, what do you look for on those overseas trips? Are they information gathering, or is there also a kind of spiritual side to what you see yourself as doing when you're overseas in developing countries? Yeah, that's a really important thing to say. Um, the developed world, developing world, sorry, unlike the developed world, is profoundly religious. Um, we think secular is normal in Australia. In the developing world, they say secular. What does that mean? How do you name a child? How do you have a wedding? You know, it's, it's quite a puzzle to them. So in many countries I visit, they will ask me to start with prayer and it will be followed with singing and dancing and, you know, being white. I don't move right if I'm in Africa, but, you know, I try. Um, and a lot of it is actually just the solidarity of being there and saying, I notice and you're not alone. We often think of development as hardware, the, the health clinic, the water well, the school, and that's important. Most of it's software. It's actually uh, poverty, which is sometimes in your head and you can't imagine another way, or cultural attitudes where you simply do not value your daughters and pull them out of school. Uh, or even with foods. I've been in humanitarian disasters where kids are dying of malnutrition and there is food there is might be roots of a banana tree that can be cooked up but no our grandparents have never eaten this but your kids are dying and this actually is necessary to save their lives so rewiring the software uh, and having solidarity uh, with people is a lot of what these trips are about your uh, banana, banana root story reminds me of the uh, launch of the potato in which uh, the uh, 
It was either Ireland or England, complete refusal to eat potatoes until the, uh, the royals finally uh, grew potatoes and fenced off the field and said, no one is allowed to come in and have <laughs> our potatoes. And then the, the notion that uh, those at the top of the status hierarchy valued the potato uh, caused it to, uh, to cascade down and uh, catch, catch, catch on. Uh, but uh, do you then, are you also conscious of... Uh, looking for stories when you travel. I mm. mean, you're a you're a great storyteller. I remember you uh, speaking about attitudes to refugees through the um, the, uh, the the um, parable. Um, now, which parable? Of the Good Samaritan. Of the Good Samaritan, yeah. of course. Uh, where uh, and the Good Samaritan not having any any, <laughs> any identifiers of uh, uh, religion or tribe. Uh, are you conscious of, of looking for stories in your in your life as a as a conscious tool of persuasion, or have you been at this storytelling gig for so long that you just do it naturally? No, I, I think I, I learned this very young. Going to church, I noticed how even the adults were bored with the sermon, but the children's talk. When the minister did the children's talk, the adults were engaged. Their eyes would light up. They would lean forward. I I worked out just. It was true for me as much for others that we actually do live by stories. I, I personally think we all indwell dominant stories that are often invisible to us. I, I think often our Western story is the richer I am, the happier I'll be. And that's why we've got to have growth at any cost because it's such a powerful story scripting us. We haven't stepped back and said, actually, is it always true? Um, so I find myself just fascinated by a good story. When I see something that I think is a good story, I, uh, I keep a journal each day, I write it down. Um, it's just the way I'm made and wired. And do you go back to that, uh, that journal often? I do. You know, I've been writing it since I was 17 and uh, I go back there and it's a very powerful way to reflect on how uh, much you've done. You think, you think you're going to remember things. You never remember them. You know, uh, the best thing my wife and I did when our kids were little was have a funny book and write down the funny things they said. As a parent, you always think you're going to remember, yes. but you don't. Yes. When we pull out the funny book and read it now to adult kids, they just love it. And we wouldn't have remembered a tenth of what's in there, uh, 90% of what's in there, but for uh, writing it down. So my journals are like that for me. Yes. Uh, do you also use them for other purposes? I know people talk about you know, one, of the, one of the things I do with my own diary is a, is a gratitude exercise mm. each day to, to try and uh, note one thing for which I'm grateful in my life, big or small, uh, and then one personal interaction that I could have managed better. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you use it for that sort of reflective purpose or is it, is it essentially an archive of things that you might use later in your uh, your work no it's reflective too so i have prayers that i write or want to pray in it i have um insights about myself um i, I don't want this these diaries to fall into any other hands <laughs> uh, so i i like you uh, what i'm grateful for which i think is so powerful what you said you know we when when as humans we always seem to compare up and someone's always doing better. I make an effort to compare down and go, aren't I blessed? And isn't it fantastic that, you know, I've had this situation, what can I do about this? So I think gratitude is so important. Yes, I notice it so much in politics because uh, to, to be in the federal parliament is to 
have a position which less than a couple of thousand of people Australians have ever had since Federation. But most of the emphasis within politics is to think not in absolute terms but in relative terms. Uh, where am I in the picking order and how can I move up it? Mm. Uh, and that, that gratitude exercise for me is very much about just appreciating what there is, uh, not just professionally but also, of course, in you know, having three healthy and happy children. Mm, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about managing difference. So you, uh, you made the quip before about uh, family differences, mm. but uh, you, you have maintained a strong friendship with your, with your brother Peter, uh, with whom you presumably disagree on, on many things. Um, how do you, what do you have to do to make that work? And what should others listening to this do if they want to maintain a friendship with a person with whom they disagree about pretty fundamental things? You've got to keep perspective that uh, at the end of the day, uh, whatever differences that seem so important and intensely magnified in the scale of history, in the scale of Australian life, are pretty marginal. And I think the second thing is you... you it's important not to take yourself too seriously. I think identity is so tied up with uh, um, not just respecting my opinions but acknowledging I'm right and uh, having to win and prove I'm right. And I think when you don't take yourself too seriously and say, you know, who knows, I think I'm right, but I, I, I may think differently in five years or ten years. Life is flawed uh, and uh, I... I'm not Plato, I'm not Socrates, I, I haven't worked all this out, uh, but this is my position and I hold it and I'm committed to it, but I'm not going to destroy relationship over it, I think is very important. But let me push you a little on that, because take the uh, pokies example you gave before, when you told, uh, talked about the importance of pokies, you didn't seem to be leaving a whole lot of scope in what you were saying for the notion that this is just one perspective, that this is a small issue, that you might be wrong. You seem to care very deeply about that, about that issue. And so I wonder how, you would, how you'd go about breaking bread with somebody who held entirely the opposite view about the role of pokies in Australian life. Yeah. So, look, I've had some very full-on debates with the leaders of clubs, hotels, the pokies industry. I've been sued by them. Um, uh, that's why the houses are in my wife's name, well, the house. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. Be because, uh, and, and it, that keeps me in the marriage too, actually, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> you know that after you've been married for a certain amount of time, it doesn't matter? <laughs> <laughs> Whose name it's in? Thank you. Um, uh so, so it's been uh, at times personal, bitter, uh, and I do feel very strongly about that. But I, but having said that, I sit down with those leaders, or I'm at forums, and I'm very courteous. I absolutely distinguish between the person and uh, perhaps the industry they're promoting. And uh, I try and remind myself that um, you know I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to think that uh, I've always uh, got it a hundred percent right and um, and uh, or a hundred percent wrong and have broken off friendship with me simply on the basis of views. So I, I try and keep a bridge across which I can walk. 
Are there other things you do to nourish your spiritual self? Do you uh, do you meditate? Uh, do you have particular exercise routines that uh, that help? Yeah, each morning I I write my diary. I uh, pray first thing. Um, so first thing out of bed, straight into yep. the, the journal. Yep. yep. Uh, I uh, then try to exercise. I don't always do that too well, but uh, that's that's the daily plan. Um, so there, there's a rhythm, uh, which I think is really important for grounding. Uh, however, you know, busy, distracted, uh, emotional things might be, that rhythm grounds you, and I do those things. Well, let me wrap up with a handful of standard questions that I've asked all of the uh, Good Life guests. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? To not be in a hurry. Um, I think when I was younger, uh, I thought if you hadn't achieved your goals by 30, <laughs> you you know, were going to be too old. Um, and I now know that uh, life comes uh, in different waves and there's different seasons where you can be just as effective without being busy and rushing and being in a hurry. So I, I'm just struck by the fact that this is, as I understand, exactly the opposite advice that Paul Keating says he would give to his teenage self. Oh, <laughs> rush! He's recognize. the great man. Ignore mine. <laughs> not at all. No, no, no. It's uh, I, it's just it's fascinating because it's 180 degrees opposite. As, <laughs> as I understand the story, Keating's uh, bit of advice to his teenage self is. Uh, time is running out. You don't realise how little time you have. You have to. You have to run like there's no, there's no tomorrow. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd hate to see uh, Keating going even faster. What he achieved. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, I, I used to believe, and this is the naive optimist, that people are basically good. I have uh, seen, particularly in my World Vision work, but let's even talk about industries like gambling and pokies that. Um, Self-interest uh, and, uh, worse, malevolence, cruelty, uh, which I've seen in World Vision uh, work, um, deep hatred, tribalism, where it's not just uh, uh, acceptable to hate the other but a virtue to hurt and kill them, uh, has disabused me of the idea that people are all just primarily good. When are you most happy? I think I'm most happy when what I think, when what I say, when what I do is in harmony. Um, often there is gaps between that and uh, I feel a bit hypocritical. I'm most happy when there's congruence there. Tell me a little bit more about the congruence. Does that or, or what, what would be a discongruence? Well, a discongruence is people would go, well, Tim's quite selfless and serving and I actually know that I've been doing some things that are quite self-serving and and, uh, and there's a, um, a dissonance, which isn't to say there shouldn't be personal time and personal pleasure and all of that, but uh, sometimes I know, and each person has to answer this for themselves, I'm not really walking the talk and uh, mm. that's, that's the discongru discongruity. Does the uh, bracelet on your wrist have to do with remi reminding yourself about the congruity? Yes, I'm just back from... It does in one way. It, I'm just back from Colombia where we had the World Vision Triennial and we've just uh, launched a campaign It takes a world to stop violence against children and we're, we're, we made these for each other and are wearing these to remind ourselves that we've got to be the change agents. Very good. 
What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? It is that prayer, meditation, reflection on both spiritual um, books, traditions, Bible. That's actually the centering thing. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah, but this isn't a confessional with legal privilege, is it? Um, <laughs> uh, look, it's just us, Tim, really. Just the you, you'll just keep it to yourself. Exactly. You can whisper. Um, look, I, I, uh, my, my wife nearly uh, divorced me over this. I'm, I'm a bit of a sports nut. I can lie on a couch for five days in a row watching cricket and not move, uh, test cricket. I played uh, footy till I was 57, um, over 45s as is Aussie rules, and I literally would have to have my wife do up my shoelaces the next morning because I couldn't bend over and walk. <laughs> I, I, love, I love sports and I still do it to the detriment of probably my, my age and time of life. What do you do now? What sport? Well, because of my knee's gone, I can't play footy. I play tennis, but the the doctors said all the cartilage is gone, and I shouldn't be playing. And you need a totally new knee, but you're too young because they only last ten years. But I still go out and play tennis, and I can't walk afterwards, uh, which is a frustration to my wife, who says, "Why don't you just swim?" And I go, "No, you get wet." And I don't, I, I like playing competitive sports. Very good. Um, it, it doesn't sound like most people's idea of a guilty pleasure. I have to, I have to be clear. Oh, okay. I, I think most people are expecting sort of alcohol or chocolates or the yeah, occasional packet of Winnie Blues. Uh, <laughs> and finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? So I uh, named my youngest son Martin after, after Martin Luther King. He in, he's really the one who inspired me to be a Baptist minister. Uh, and his sheer countercultural courage, you know, to say we will match your capacity to hate us with our capacity to love you. Uh, that extraordinary, breathtaking vision that came out of his faith uh, that led to what it led to with the civil rights movement um, probably has influenced me uh, the most. Tim Costello, thank you for your wit, your wisdom, your intellect and for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like The Good Life, why not rate us on iTunes or put up a little post on Facebook. Next week, I'll chat with Matt Napier on kicking a soccer ball all the way across Africa.